Yeah. So, uh, welcome, Governor Baker, to the Standard Times editorial board. Uh, I'm Jack Spillane, the editorial page editor, and we're going to go around the table and okay. um, introduce ourselves. You want to start, Mike? Uh, Mike Bonner, reporter here at the Standard Times. Tina Malott, uh, director of PR and marketing at the Whaling Museum and um, community advisory board member. Okay. Uh, Reverend Dave Lima, I'm the executive minister of the Interchurch Council here in the South and uh, community advisory. Tom Malonis, managing editor and online editor. I'm Jeanette Barnes. I'm a reporter here at the Standard Times. All right. So, um, Charlie we, Baker. <laughs> and yes. And <laughs> what is your affiliation with Massachusetts? <laughs> oh, and Jack, before we go further, uh, we do have a community advisory board member on the phone as well. Peter okay. Mews, he's the uh, CEO and president of First Citizens Federal Credit Union. Okay. So uh, I know there's some things that you want to talk about, uh, some things that have been happening uh, lately uh, that are of interest statewide. So do you want to start off and, and sure. touch some points um, that you're interested in? Well, I'd start with um, some of the stuff we have pending before the legislature, we, which we hope finds its way through the process before the end of the session. Um, the biggest thing I think we have, uh, we, we have a number of particular issues that are in front of them, but uh, obviously the CARE Act, which is kind of a second um, second element with respect to dealing with the opioid issue in Massachusetts is is currently pending before the Mental Health and Substance Use Disorder Committee. Uh, we've had a lot of, we had a great hearing. Um, I testified with Health and Human Service Secretary Mary Lee Sutters for about an hour and a half, and um, we've had many conversations with them since then. Um, I do believe this particular piece of legislation in one form or another will make it through the process, but there are several reasons why it's particularly important that I believe it make it through. The first is it creates a mechanism to credential um, recovery coaches and here in Massachusetts. And the reason I think that's particularly important is we have embedded on a demonstration project basis uh, recovery coaches in some hospital emergency rooms and have discovered that uh, they are very good at connecting with people who have overdosed and are dealing with an opioid addiction and nudging them uh, into treatment. Now, um, the success rate in treatment obviously varies, but the bottom line is is these folks have proven to be able to connect with people in a way that others can't or haven't been able to. And I think the opportunity to credential people as recovery coaches and to incorporate this into a longer-term outpatient approach to the way we deal with opioid addiction generally has huge upside potential. And... Uh, and it also, also my belief that once we get people credentialed in this space, we can make it a more standard part of the way we think about care generally for people who are dealing with this issue. And there is a growing body of evidence that um, outpatient support, proactive, aggressive, and sophisticated um, advocacy and support for people who are dealing with this issue with or without medication-assisted treatment and for some folks, um, and it works either way. Uh, this has turned out to be an incredibly valuable asset in helping people get better and stay better. Uh, there's also a series of issues uh, around um, what I think of as a blister pack for um, opioids generally. I think one of the reasons we got into this problem was we didn't have a mechanism uh, for somebody to write a prescription for two or three pills, which for a lot of people who are dealing with minor incidents probably would have been plenty. So instead they got 15 and 30 day supplies and because they were told to work their way through them, they did, and 
there's plenty of evidence that just suggests once you get past sort of five or six days on this stuff, you're basically going to have to use some sort of withdrawal mechanism to get off them. Um, and there is no mechanism for delivering it this way, and we would like to create one so that when you go to the doctor or the dentist and they have some minor thing they want you to solve for, they could literally just prescribe a blister pack which has two or three pills in it, and basically that would be that. Um, as it is right now, we don't have anything like that. Um, there's also elements in there to create a more aggressive approach to how we deal with people who overprescribe. Um, there are what I would describe as a series of initiatives that are sort of a reformulated version of um, the civil commitment issue that we raised the last time we talked with the legislature about this. Um, we have a lot more support this time from folks in the hospital community and others to the new version we came up with, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see something like that um, as part of the process as this thing moves forward. We're also looking for the federal government to let us make Narcan available on a demonstration basis over the counter, uh, which I think would help a lot with um, availability and distribution. I mean, there's a lot in it, but the bottom line here is um, we have made some modest progress on this issue. After 10 years of double-digit increases in deaths and prescriptions and overdoses, we are one of the only states in the country that actually saw a drop in deaths in 2017, uh, leveling off of overdoses and a drop in prescriptions. Um, but we start from a very bad place and we have a very long way to go. But I do take some comfort in the fact that we seem to have broken a trend that had lasted for almost a decade with some of the reforms we passed previously. We also have a pretty big housing bill, two of them. We have a bond bill, which we're hoping we'll get through the legislature, which will help us both preserve and develop affordable and workforce housing. Um, and we also have a housing production bill, uh, which is currently before the legislature. We have um, Massachusetts in the 60s, 70s, and 80s produced about 30,000 housing starts a year. Um, we have produced about half that um, on an annual basis in the 90s, the 2000s, and the teens. Um, it's a problem. Uh, by not creating and producing um, the kind of housing that we've produced historically. Uh, we've created shortages, and those shortages have translated into price increases, and those price increases have made housing very expensive for almost everybody. Um, and the downside for that is young people, moderate-income families, even middle-income families are now having trouble in lots of parts of Massachusetts accessing housing. There's almost no inventory on the market in many places. and. Um, and in addition to that, it creates a really big issue when you think about growing your economy and growing your population. Um, we have a series of initiatives that you guys are familiar with around transportation. Um, the one that's obviously most interesting to this part of the Commonwealth is the um, EIR we got approved for uh, South Coast Rail uh, on the alternative route. Uh, phase one, as we think about it. Um, the good news there is uh, we're moving ahead with that, um, and I anticipate that folks will start to see some serious um, developments there with respect to land taking and construction and that kind of stuff over the course of the next 12 months. Um, and I think the other thing that is particularly important about this is it will finish about 10 years ahead of uh, the original schedule for phase two, and I think from our point of view, getting this thing sort of going. Um, is an important element uh, in sort of delivering on something that people have talked about for a long time. We're currently waiting on the response from the EDCs, 
who are actually look, who are reviewing the proposals that we got for offshore wind. Um, that decision will probably happen, I'm guessing, sometime in May. Um, if the date slips, it will slip a little. It won't slip a lot. And part of the slippage would be due to the fact that the utilities, who are the decision makers in this process, along with the independent evaluator, spent a good part of the month of March um, cleaning up trees and down lines and power, power lines and all the rest. And, um, and I've also been dealing with the decision process over around the, uh, the hydro project in Canada. But the bottom line is, based on the limited information that I have, it does appear that the bids, for the most part, are economically uh, very strong and, uh, and all consistent and, and um, sort of compatible with the original requirements in the, in the contract, which is pretty exciting from our point of view. Um, the only other thing I thought I might mention is uh, we continue to um, chase a variety of initiatives around um, public transportation generally, most of which are built on this notion that the core system has been neglected for 50 years or so. And a big part of our, uh, of our not terribly sexy but hugely important efforts in the public transportation space are to invest in the core system. And, um, and signals and switches and power systems and electronics and tracks are not very exciting. Um, but they are the things that actually translate into a uh, into a reliable and dependable system. And um, there's going to be a lot of work in that space over the course of the next couple of years. Beth, do you want to step up? Um, I, Governor, I'd just first like to say thank you for the movement on the Coast Rail. Um, you know, when this first phase one came out, there was some juggling trying to figure out what it would mean versus the full rail project, but it feels really great for this region to see the forward momentum on the project itself, to see potential shovels in the ground uh, yeah. a year from now. And um, so it's been uh, very exciting. As you said, it's a project that's been talked about for a long time. And uh, uh, we know that you were a big part of that, so thank you. Um, I did want to ask about offshore wind. Uh, I know you talked about the slippage of the date. Um, and I wondered, uh, I had a couple of questions actually. Um, both about the timing of it, but also where the state is looking in terms of the potential uh, birth of an industry, the supply chain setting up within the state, and how you see that now offshore wind as a mixture or a part of the renewable energy that the state needs to pursue. Well, one of the things we're also doing alongside sort of the offshore wind piece and some of the other um, initiatives we're pursuing is we are doing some side-by-side -side investment in storage, and there are a bunch of reasons for that. One is um, storage, particularly if we can create affordable uh, models that can be used in a distributed way, have the ability to firm up intermittent energy sources like wind um, as well as solar. Um, the other thing is uh, it's possible, and again this is on a grander scale, but you know this doesn't happen overnight, um, if we could really create affordable storage options that became sort of a, uh, what's the word I want, a, uh, a, a traditional part of how people think about um, heating their home, um, electricity and all the rest, it could actually start in peak price periods in the winter and summer. We've had, as we all know, some really interesting weather patterns over the course of the past few years, which everybody anticipates are going to continue. and. Um, and those have led to some unbelievably high prices um, for some very environmentally um, 
environmentally unsound um, hits on us. And storage is one way, uh, if we could actually get to the point where we can, we, when I say we, I mean people as individuals, businesses, buildings, because I think this is more of a distributed solution than a, than a grid solution. Um, you know, basically store energy during the non-peak periods and then use it during the peak periods. From a financial point of view and an environmental point of view, there are big possibilities there. Um, I also think the, um, based on the, the the information that I've heard about how the wind stuff is pricing out, I think it has tremendous potential to be a big part of the of the process going forward. And almost everybody who has participated in the bid process, again, as I understand it, because I'm not making decisions and I haven't seen the documents, um, has spoken quite favorably about um, working collaboratively with folks in the Commonwealth to make them part of the um, of the staging process and all the rest. There is competition from other states. Yeah, we know. You're confident that we'll still be first, uh, or still be the leader of, of the wind industry despite the competition from New Jersey and New York? Yeah, I do. I mean, we're a lot farther ahead than they are, and this is not easy to do. Um, Does it seem likely to you that we'll have at least two winners in that bid process? I mean, they're going to make the utilities are going to make the call, and um, they'll make the decision that they think best meets the requirements associated with the the statutory um, framework in which they're operating out of, and that that could be one, it could be two, it could be it could be three. I mean, it depends. It seems like some people are making the case that having like two smaller uh, projects approved at the same time would be more effective in in starting up. Um, you know, an industry and getting other suppliers involved. Do you buy, do you buy that, or is that just well, kind of like the line from the people who almost, want that? Yeah, right. The people who are okay. making that argument, the people who would benefit from it, the people okay. who would benefit from one from choosing one, say, hey, what you really want here is is the big player in the market who's heavily capitalized and has the capacity to deliver first time out and give you the. I mean. I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that particular question, which is why I'm glad the EDCs and the independent evaluators and the folks at DOR, DOER, are worrying about that because um, they are. And believe me, everybody's thinking about all of those questions as part of this. I mean, they're also spending a lot of time on making sure that there are structures in place for dealing with um, questions around um, around around marine science and around the fishing industry, which, you know, the last thing I would ever do is screw up the fishing industry um, in pursuit of an opportunity to develop offshore wind. Um, I I'm a big believer in the in the in the fishing industry. I know how important it is to to this region and to other parts of Massachusetts. And um, and there's going to be a ton of dialogue and conversation to ensure that whatever happens here uh, is both measured and studied on a go-forward basis, and that there are issues associated with that they'll be dealt with. What do you think about? The I mean, bed? think about the guy who's the Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs. I mean, he is a sportsman fundamentally. Um, I mean, Matt Beaton spends a lot of time on the water and cares a lot about this space, and we'll make sure that one way or another it gets dealt with. What do you think about the proposal this week for New Bedford to, to monitor the... Uh, Happy to have them as part of the mix, but okay. there are a lot of people at the state and federal level who have an oar in this water as well. But 
yeah, happy to have them as part of the mix. Andy? Well, I mean, just the same thing with the concerns of the fishermen. Are you going to get down into the nitty-gritty of the, uh, the passageways between the turbines and all of that, the demands that the fishermen have? I think all those I think all those issues are going to have to be addressed. I mean, keep in mind that, you know, back to um, to the previous reference to the rest of the country. Okay, I mean, I think there's a reason why there were a bunch of local folks on that letter, and then a whole ton of folks kind of all the way down the coast. I think everybody's starting to now think about this in the larger context of not just what does this mean here, but what does this also mean off New Jersey, off Long Island, off you know, all the way down. And um, and I think it's going to be really important, um, since I do believe we'll be first, that those issues get addressed and dealt with and the precedents get set here that are appropriate for dealing with the issues associated with the fishing industry. What kind of ways do you go about trying to hear from the fishing industry in terms of, um, is there an outreach program or what, what kind of ideas are there to make sure that the fishermen's voice are heard in this process? Well, there are several standing um, organizations that involve both public and private folks at the state and local and federal level that talk all the time about the fishing industry. Um, and they make decisions that relate specifically to the fishing industry, and they will also have a role to play in the larger conversation here. But there's also a coastal zone management um, agency that's going to be involved in this, as well as um, all the folks who are involved in marine fishery issues generally. I mean, there's literally like five or six standing committees I can think of that have players from the industry, players from the state, players from the federal government. And and NOAA obviously will have a role to play in this conversation as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of people with, as I said, an oar in the water on this one. Jack? Yep. Question? I just wanted to go off of the, the fishermen and the offshore wind. Our fishermen here, there's a feeling of being left behind as this offshore wind is growing. And it does seem like the voices, everyone's starting to wake up a little bit and go, oh, this is coming. And how will this affect fishing? How can, when fishermen feel like they're not being heard, how do you respond to that? Um, again, there are literally standing committees that meet every month and every quarter that involve our folks and the fishing industry and the federal folks that talk about the state of the industry. And they've been meeting on a regular basis for as long as I can remember. I mean, certainly the last four or five years. Um, and if they don't think that's the right forum to have this conversation, we'll create a different one. Um, I don't want their I do not want their voice to get lost period um, and it won't be um, on these big issues like energy, transportation even housing to a certain extent um, have you begun to, to think in terms of your governorship about long term solutions okay we've had a lot of crisis planning around things like transportation, uh, housing uh, I don't know about energy but, but you know in terms of like Okay, so I may be governor for four, eight, twelve years, but you know I, I want to set in a uh, some planning uh, that really improves uh, 
I think some things like everybody would pretty much agree that there are some transportation and housing education crises in Massachusetts. Have you begun to, to, to start to think about long-term planning? So um, on the housing piece, I want to get this bill passed. Um, we spent a year negotiating with the environmental community, the developer community, the home builder community, the municipal folks, sort of all the various players, and basically said, you guys all agree that we used to build 30,000 new units a year in Massachusetts, and we've been building eight and 12,000 for the past three decades, and that that's a problem. So since you all agree it's a problem, help us figure out a solution. And what we, and what we came up with, I think, is a pretty decent um, sort of thread the needle between what's a state decision and what's a local decision because that's been where a big part of our problem and our issues have been historically and uh, and I think we can build 135,000 units of housing over the next four or five years if we get that legislation passed how does that affect um, a, a lower value area like New Bedford where you haven't had the jobs that, that push the market that much and some have argued that we're sharing more of our burden of public housing uh, uh, than other parts of the state. So how does that plan, I mean, we know how it would affect Greater Boston where the prices are high. How, how does it affect us down here? Um, well, I'd say, first of all, I do think is, my opinion, you guys should tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, is we actually start to break ground and, and do stuff associated with phase one of the uh, South Coast Rail Project. You are going to see some property values change. I mean, that will happen. And um, and I do think you're going to see some transit-oriented development uh, begin to occur around some of that. And I also believe that since a big part of that housing bond bill that we've got pending is built on the idea of doing more um, around transit, um, there's a real opportunity there to build workforce stuff, which is, um, I think we're the first administration that ever put serious money into building workforce housing. And we put about $100 million into it because we agree we don't have enough of what I would describe as housing that is affordable to people who are working as opposed to what people think of traditionally as affordable housing. Um, the other thing I would say on the transportation piece, we have a futures commission that we put together. And the reason we did that is, uh, and, we act, and, and the folks who are on it for the most part are, they're more academic than they are sort of traditional builder types. And the reason we did that was there's a general agreement, I think there's a general agreement among most people that electric vehicles and of all sorts and autonomous vehicles of all sorts are coming. And the big debate is whether this is a five to seven years away issue, a 10 to 15 years away issue, or a 15 to 20 years away type issue. If it's a 15 to 20 year away issue, it's a whole different set of issues and a different set of strategies than if it's in fact something that's going to happen in the next five or ten years in a serious way. Um, because it changes a lot of things around development, around housing, around, excuse me, around development, around um, automobile distribution, around public transportation. And I'll give you some simple examples. And by the way, big issues around the grid because if you're going to start having a huge part of your vehicle fleet um, electronic or electric you're going to end up plugging that 
stuff into the same grid that we were just talking about, which all the assumptions and projections about grid requirements and electric and thermal requirements are all based on, they, they don't include a big, a big slug of transportation in there. Um, but if you really got to the point where you were starting to electrify vehicles, buses, trains, and then move to some autonomous approach to that stuff, you're talking about having for vehicles, for example, right now cars typically spend 95% of their time parked and 5% of their time driven. Um, and everybody owns one, right? You get into this transportation as a service world where those vehicles are running 95% of the time instead of 5% of the time and where people are paying subscriptions to transportation service companies and they don't own a car. Um, parking changes, where you build changes, what you do with your roads and your parking capacity changes. Um, one of the things we started to do is connect a lot of our bike paths. And the reason we've been doing that is if you really run this, if you run this idea completely out, you could literally see a scenario where in a lot of places, what used to be parked cars are gonna become like legit bike lanes that people will be able to travel on. And you're also gonna see a lot of electric bikes at some point, which is gonna make the distance that people can travel on a bike significantly bigger than it used to be. Now, most bike paths and most bike trails that we've developed over the years, they haven't been about getting from here to here. They've been just, we can build one here and we can build one here and we can build one here, right? And they're not connected. And so one of the things we've started to do is connect a lot of these bike paths, especially the ones that ultimately land you in downtowns and commerce centers and, um, and places of work so that um, as they start to become a more significant part of the transportation piece, which I believe they will be, um, we're doing the right kinds of things to make that possible. But this Futures Commission, which is gonna issue a report toward the end of the year, is gonna answer what I think is one of the biggest questions we face, which is how much of what's gonna happen here is gonna be driven by um, what happens over the next 10 years as opposed to the next 20. And I think some of the big decisions we'll have to make in transportation will be driven off that. And driverless cars with yeah, handicapped right. people will be able to have cars that don't now. Well, and if you look at the math on how much, it, this is all speculative, but if you look at the math on what it costs somebody to purchase transportation on a subscription basis as a service in a driverless car um, that's electric versus what it costs them to own, insure, operate, um, a car right now it's really different and most people believe we are going to get to the point where this is going to be big fleets more than it is individual ownership um, and and they're talking about it pretty far into what I consider to be kind of the suburbs I mean they're not talking about this as being the kind of thing that's only going to matter to people who live in really tight urban centers they're talking about this as being the kind of thing you're going to see in the suburbs too had to predict the future economy though a little bit yeah, yeah. oh yeah but but what I don't want to do is I don't want to make a bunch of assumptions about um, that everybody's going to do the same thing the same way, given this really big disruptive technology that everybody acknowledges is coming. Um, one of the people who's the five to seven years people I was talking to about this said, look, in 1986, um, 
9x was it? no Verizon asked um, McKinsey to do a study on how many people were going to own a cell phone in 1999, and they paid them like four or five million bucks to do the study, and they said 900,000 people are going to own a cell phone in 1999. There's actually 109 million. And the point they made was, they said, one of the things that happens here is these lines are not linear when some big disruption shows up. They kind of go like that. And I just think, if this is really like a 20-year out there, then we will do different things than we will do if it's a 10-year. If it's a 10-year, a lot of things are going to change. The other thing in the short term, let's talk five to 10 years. Um, we have an environmental bond bill pending that has about 350 million in resiliency. Um, last year, we, we did an executive order to create a uh, sort of a climate change strategy. And one of the elements of that was to get communities um, on a voluntary basis, we weren't compelling them to do this, to develop a municipal vulnerability plan. And we had money to pay for it if people wanted to do it. And we got about 60 or 70 communities to do it. And then we had four nor'easters. And we now have about 50 more that have showed up that sort of got the message and now want to do it. But if we can get this bond bill passed, which codifies a lot of the work that was in that executive order and makes it a statutory requirement and create municipal vulnerability plans in all 351 cities and towns, and then create the hazard mitigation strategies based on those vulnerability plans and start spending some of the money out of the bond bill to deal with those issues. I personally think that's a really big deal too. Um, because for the 74, you guys know this better than anybody, for the 74, 75 communities in Massachusetts that are waterfront, um, that waterfront is both economically important, environmentally uh, important and challenging, and, uh, and recreationally important. Um, so I think one of the things we're going to focus a lot on over the course of the next few years is going to be creating the resiliency strategies that we're going to need to deal with all the issues associated with climate. Jeanette? I don't have anything else right now. Anybody? David? Um, I want to thank you, uh, especially as you started uh, uh, talking today about opiates and uh, housing and, and a lot of that. Uh, we're heavily involved in this community with opiate outreach. We, uh, in fact, the day you signed your first piece of legislation on the Grand Staircase, I was receiving an award in the Hall of Flags for leadership in suicide prevention, and the extra applause really made me feel good. So I want to thank you for that. Happy to help. Uh, yeah. Yeah, was, uh, but um, but we, we've been doing an outreach for the last three years that uh, BSAS is recognized and helped supported. And the recovery coaches is a major factor. And getting uh, credentialed, it can be very difficult, especially for folks, because they may not have all the licensing. It takes 500 hours. And a lot of these different uh, organizations that hire folks on don't necessarily have the paying wage. So your, your legislation is extremely important to us. Uh, um, we do... We've done over 500 visits with the police department, the chaplains. We're the only community that we're aware of in the state uh, that uses chaplains along with recovery coaches on our rides, and we do them six times a week. Um, whenever there's an overdose, we, we go out and we visit the home. We do the wellness check and everything else. So that's major, and I want that to is, thank that's you for your leadership. Um, housing, I, I happen to chair the local Homeless Service Providers Network and working with the homeless 
Um, that's where the HUDs money comes through the community to uh, to help with the shelters and all that. Yep. And again, it has been a major difficulty in affordable housing. So again, I commend you on all that. Um, how much, with this legislation, I realize that there's a lot of things that, that can happen, but being able to make those changes, it takes, takes a lot to change minds and uh, how much support do you feel you're getting uh, from some of the leaders of our state to be able to get these things through you know the only way I can really measure that is uh, what kind of you know the, the, the key measure of interest is time right mm -hmm. I mean if you want to know if somebody's interested in something one way you figure it out is whether or not they put any time into it and um, the the folks in the House and the Senate on both the housing initiative and on the um, the CARE Act have spent a lot of time uh, with folks on our team talking about why we did, why we proposed what we proposed, what we were trying to accomplish, what we think, how we think, think it fits with the other stuff that's going on, and uh, and I take that as a good sign that they're serious about uh, understanding it and getting something done on it before the end of the session. But that said, you know the. Um, you, you never really know until it actually gets passed and uh, and that's true for any piece of legislation there's a lot of um, there's a lot of points of view and there's always um, the possibility that something will hold it up or hang it up as the session winds down and as people chase whatever their particular priorities are I I am, I am hopeful. I, you know, confidence probably too strong a word, but I'm hopeful that based on the conversations we've had with folks, they're pretty serious about these. Um, I, I also think, you know, we when we took office, there were 1,600 families in hotels and motels, and um, there were 50 operating motels in Massachusetts serving homeless families. And we said there's a better way to do this, and we worked with our colleagues in the legislature, and. We managed to get it down to the point where there's now one hotel uh, that has 40 families in it, and those 40 families, for the most part, need to be in a um, in a in a more um, traditional in, in a setting that has things like elevators because they they have family members in wheelchairs and stuff like that. But the rest of it, we've managed the rest of those folks, we've managed to get into uh, more traditional permanent housing um, in the communities that they were from in the first place, and. Uh, and, and I think on that issue, we've developed a pretty solid relationship with a lot of the folks in the legislature and a lot of the folks who deal with housing issues generally. And I think that's going to help when they're making decisions about whether or not they think we can actually follow through and execute on the legislation. I know that matters because it's mattered in other situations, in both directions, where they say, this is something you guys clearly have invested time and effort in and you've done a good job on. Um, therefore, we are willing to keep running with you on this. Um, but you hear the same thing and in the other direction sometimes, too. Tina, do you have a question? Sure. So my question is a bit on the lighter side of the state conversation in comparison to housing, transportation, energy issues. Um, in terms of the creative economy, we here in New Bedford have been enjoying sort of a renaissance, in a sense, of arts and culture, um, and the energy is pretty palpable on the street. We've also enjoyed um, 
state level support as of recent, and that's helped kind of inject and infuse some growth into the economy here on the arts and culture section or side. I'm wondering um, if you, how you feel for one about that side of the economic factor um, as it drives economic growth and increases tourism, um, increases quality of life for residents, and if you if you see arts and culture having a continued strategic place at the table when talking about the state's uh, sustained economic growth and vitality. Um, the answer is yes. Um, and there's a couple ways that we support that. And one of the ways we support it is by making sure we continue to invest in communities. Um, because a lot of decisions about some of the issues you're raising come down to the way communities make decisions about how they want to leverage arts and culture. Um, another way is through the, the bond authorizations for the Mass Cultural Council, which I think is one of the most interesting and successful ways that the Commonwealth has partnered with a lot of folks in the private sector. Um, they've leveraged state money, they've, lever they've leveraged our money, they've leveraged local money, they've leveraged private philanthropy to do a lot of really good things in the culture space um, over the course of the last five, ten years. Um, I was glad that we were able to get that legislation reauthorized and continue to be able to spend about $10 million a year on that. Um, I also think the, the thing people... I believe have figured out is that art is no longer just about art, it's also about design. And because it's also about design and because the tools that are available to artists are way more sophisticated and, um, and capable than they were once upon a time, you can use art on a lot of different services for a lot of different purposes and a lot of different reasons. And I think it's changed in a big way the way people think about art and design, period. Um, and that makes it part of um, some of the decisions we make with respect to stuff we invest in to our MassWorks program um, and some of the, well, the Complete Streets program and some of the other elements we have that are specifically designed to support downtown and economic development in mostly cities around Massachusetts. And that makes it a lot easier for us to factor those types of initiatives and those proposals into what we're doing. About five more minutes. Okay. Uh, Peter, uh, do you have a question? I, I'm going to be talking to Peter Muse. Who's I'm trying to start. Oh, his phone wasn't working. Oh, so, so okay. over here. Sorry about that. Hold on a sec. All right, try now. Okay. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. No, Peter, we can't hear you at all. You need to speak up. <laughs> Thank you very much for two ends. One is, um, you may remember me. I am Michelle Collins' uncle. Um, I do remember When you. we met down here once before. Yep. Uh, so I just want to thank you for that. And I also want to thank you for allowing me to participate by phone. As the others know, I just took a discharge from Brigham and Women's. So I will. Uh, I, I just like the opportunity to be able to do this. But but I, I do have a, a little bigger state question, and it involves um, real estate taxes. Under the new federal taxes, uh, Massachusetts is a fairly high real estate uh, uh, deduction of real estate taxes, and it, and it it has strong implications in New Bedford and many other places. But is, is there anything being done at the state level to try to talk about uh, reclassification of, of real estate taxes into gifting or anything like that that, 
Because a lot of these towns are going to get really, really hung up in a short period of time on the tax side. It's nothing, you know, it's more or less uh, creative financing. And I know that uh, that's quite, quite frankly, you've been, you've been very successful at that over time. And just don't know if there's been any discussion along those lines. So let me make sure I understand your question. Are you asking if the Commonwealth is working on a, uh, a way to deal with the cap on state and local taxes for federal um, exemption and deduction, pur deduct deduction purposes? That's, that's exactly, as opposed to letting every city and town go up and do their own thing. Is there a, uh, a group that would get together and have some discussions and think if there's a way around it? Um, you know, I, I look at Massachusetts, New Jersey, California, that type of thing, but uh, it's, it's worthy of discussion more than anything else. There have been a lot of discussions about this, Peter, um, and the biggest challenge people have bumped up against so far is um, is coming up with something that would pass a constitutional test, um, which turns out to be harder than it might look at first glance. I mean, there was a whole flurry of conversations and, and ideas proposed shortly after the tax law got passed. and. You know, frankly, part of the reason why I haven't heard much about it lately is because most of those ideas, when people really sort of dug into them, couldn't couldn't meet the um, couldn't meet the tests that would be required to be met to determine they would be you know considered legal um, and sustainable. I think the um, I think the you know frankly, I think one of the things we should do, and we've had sort of preliminary conversations with some of the folks in the delegation and some of the um, folks in. Uh, some of the states that look kind of like us is whether we could make a case that the limits, you know, if there's going to be a limit, you know, that's applied nationally, the limit needs to be a lot higher or it needs to be adjusted based on uh, either wealth or uh, home value because um, that, that cap in certain states is really not an issue. Um, but in a state like Massachusetts, which has much higher property values and has much higher income, median income to begin with, um, it's a completely different game than it is in states that don't. And that's a legitimate issue. And if you look at the history of most federal programs, um, they usually take, um, I mean, I, I can name a dozen federal programs just sitting here where um, the median income, not just at the state level, but at the county level affects the way the federal government either collects something or distributes something. And, um, and I think we're much better off trying to make an argument to get the feds to think more broadly about what they're doing on this than trying to create some way to avoid it. That, that makes sense. I think collectively, if it is around the country, obviously strength in numbers is a good thing. Yeah, I agree with that. By the way, how is the credit union business? Credit union business is doing very well because of the community side. Uh, taking uh, very good care of our folks on the South Coast and Cape Cod. I think very much drastic. You know I'm a big fan of the credit unions. I, I, do, know, I do know that okay. from uh, both your family and professionally at the uh, Board and Braintree. Right, exactly. Okay. Before we wrap up, I wonder if we could just ask you a little bit about your re-election. Yeah. Um, I, you've announced, right? Uh, we have. And so uh, how are you feeling about that? It's, uh, are you worried about the uh, a potential blue wave um, uh, 
given you um, any, any difficulties? She's so popular. the lieutenant, right. <laughs> lieutenant governor is fond of pointing out to me, as you all know, she's from Worcester County, right? She's fond of reminding me that uh, we won the election by 39,000 votes and we won Worcester County by 47,000. Um, so um, that's her way of reminding me that Worcester County is important, but it also reminds us both that um, it was one of the closest elections in state history. So um, we we take nothing for granted. We we also believe that by focusing on the work and trying not to and trying to stay out of some of the partisan noise that passes these days for political discourse, we stand to some extent in um, sort of a different place than a lot of people do who are in public life and. Uh, we built a bipartisan administration. Um, we have Democrats, Republicans, and Independents serving in key roles. We have good relationships with our colleagues in local government and in the legislature, no matter what party they're from. Um, I get along very well with Senator Montigny. I get along very well with um, Senator Rodericks. I get along very well with Representative Strauss. I get along very well with um, the Fall River delegation. I get along well with the New Bedford delegation. We have a good relationship with Mayor, Mayor Correa. We have a good relationship with Mayor Mitchell. Um, I mean, we are trying to make the case to people that in the end, um, this is supposed to be a distributed decision-making process. You're supposed to recognize and understand that your voice isn't the only one that matters. You're supposed to listen and hear other voices other than your own and you're supposed to be willing to adopt uh, policies and procedures that are consistent with a multiplicity of points of view. And, um, and, and I, I frankly, you know, based on the time I spent out and about in the Commonwealth, I think people appreciate that. And I think they especially appreciate it when everybody else is playing such a polarizing game. Um, so I guess what I would say, Jack, in response to your question is, we're gonna stick to the tone and the, and the, and the approach we've taken to governing as, as, as sort of campaigners and, um, and let the work and the way we go about doing this stuff speak for itself. Great. I just have one more question. Sure. One quick. Um, within the, the community, specifically the fishing industry, one big pro issue is the Sector 9, well, whatever sector they're in now, fishing yeah. ban, and specifically a recent real story, how it's affecting just the shore side as well, uh, the icing, the lumpers, the welders and such. I know it's a federal issue because it comes from NOAA, but on a state level, what is kind of trying to be done to affect this and get the fishermen back out there? We, we talk to those guys all the time. Um, the other big issue, obviously, we're talking to them about is the, is the licenses, the, um, the, the licenses mm -hmm. that were taken and trying to uh, make a case that those licenses ought to at least uh, land back here somewhere in Massachusetts. And, and, you know, there's no way to know this, but it does appear that the auction process on that did make a positive difference in the sense that it looks like the feds are going to are not going to charge the uh, the boats for the cost of monitoring for the next couple of years, which I think I think those two things are not unrelated. Let's put it that way. Um, but the best the best place we have to make our case is is within some of those joint state, federal, and industry um, groups that meet on a pretty regular basis, and uh, and and we and we do. Feds move more slowly than we do on a lot of stuff, though, which is mm -hmm. part of the issue. Am, am I missing something? Is that is that new that the boats are not going to be charged for monitoring? I hadn't heard that. I hadn't heard that either, but I wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so the governor's probably making up. I read it somewhere. Yeah. I think I read it in one of my briefings. 
follow up on that. So okay. we have the public information yet. Okay. Well, that's the best kind of all, right? It's true and it's not public. Then it's yours. Okay. Um, we should check on that. Yep. We'll okay. check on that and we'll get back to you on okay. the specifics. Thanks well, I appreciate much. the chance to right. pay you a visit, and uh, and obviously we're excited about a number of the initiatives we're working with people on down here. We think they have a lot of potential. Thank you. And thanks for what you do. Thanks. It's a really tough, really, really tough issue.